0: Hi, I'm Matt Kierkegaard, and welcome to the second special Brews News Live from BrewCon 2018, proudly presented by Bintani. This week we have a chat we recorded with Dick Cantwell. Dick co founded Elysian Brewing Company in 1996, where he served as head brewer until its sale to Anheuser Busch in 2015. During his tenure there, Alessian was named Large Brew Pub of the Year three times at the Great American Beer Festival, and in 2004 he received the Brewing Association's Russell Sherer Award for Innovation in Brewing. Dick was at BrewCon to present about the history and technical brewing practices of brewing eclectic IPAs, a presentation based on his book of the same name. Dick has also written or co-written books about barley wine, the Brewers Association's Guide to Starting Your Own Brewery, and Wooden Beer. We have a great chat about the evolution of the use of hops and the growth of IPAs and Dick's views about the many variations of the style including of course the NEPA. Enjoy the conversation. Dick Cantwell, welcome to Radio Brews News.
1: Thanks, thanks for having me.
0: Now we're actually speaking before your uh, your, your speech about brewing eclectic IPAs, uh, so uh, I'm hopefully not going over too much of the things you'll be talking about this afternoon, but the India Pale Ale really is the workhorse of the, the craft beer industry, it, 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 it both ignites excitement in people, it's the mainstay of many breweries, and we're also seeing it as being the you know really uh, malleable and evolutionary beer style that is going in all sorts of different directions. What is it about that one style that makes it um, such an exciting style within the craft industry?
1: I think you kind of just answered your question by asking it. Um, You know IPA has been uh, a show-off style. It's in the US, it's, it's the most popular craft brewing style. Uh, it was a it was a style that American craft brewers and homebrewers discovered early on from brewing history that was kinda of kind of on the stylistic scrap heap. You know, it was barely being made in Britain anymore. Uh, and people picked it up and sort of thought, Well, gee, what what did this beer used to be like? I'd like to try to make something that bold and interesting. And so it became kind of a kind of a benchmark kind of thing, kind of a show-off thing, that, pe- that brewers were able to show each other what sorts of excesses they could indulge in putting together a beer. It was very competitive. My beer is hoppier than yours. My beer is stronger than yours. Oh, look, look, we invented a substyle, style an imperial IPA. <laughs> um, and so people have just sort of run with that and continued to find new ways to express themselves within that even very broad category.
0: I spoke to a brewer this week about a style that we will get to, but he described uh, hops as being something that's very easy for non-brewers to understand. Um, And I took from that that he meant that the mainstream lagers were ever less bitter, they were ever less hoppy. a lot of the traditional beer styles were maybe malt or yeast-driven, and then suddenly with the American pale ale uh, that evolved in the 1980s, you suddenly had this one standout ingredient that was very easy to understand, and there was not much subtlety to it. Is, is that a, a reasonable thesis, do you think? Well, I think so.
1: Um yeah, I mean, because it's certainly a way to contrast bold and flavorful beers with a lot of what came before, you know, just the stuff that was being pumped out by industrial brewers. Um, it also ties into, I wonder if he, you know, really, I mean, that's, that, that says a lot and sa- says even more than I think that brewer intended for, to be said. Um, because in the last 30, 40 years or so, you know, we've had types of hops that have produced flavors that are completely unheard of in the history of brewing. I mean, in, in the late 60s, Cascade made its appearance as a, as a hop. And that was something that was way off the charts in terms of fruitiness and distinctiveness and, and bold flavors. Uh, and the, the big brewers, for the most part, were really not into that. Uh, it's kind of surprising that it survived. But it happened to coincide with the arrival of craft brewers, and in particular, uh, by its use by Anchor Brewing and its Liberty Ale, and by Sierra Nevada in its Pale Ale and eventually in its Celebration Ale. And those were kind of iconic beers that a lot of early home brewers and craft brewers seized on, and they wanted to emulate that. So that kind of cemented Cascade as the new revolutionary hop, and we went on from there.
0: It's interesting because I hear you describe that, and I had a hop grower from Australia's Hop Products Australia which developed the Galaxy Hop, and they sent it out to trials, and the big brewers basically sent it back saying... Sorry, that's too flavor positive for us. We want something. And that was in the last 10, 15 years. And uh, we're still seeing that. And yet craft brewers and stone and wood really took those flavors and punched them out uh, big time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, in in between all that, there was Chinook and Centennial and then eventually Amarillo, Citra, Mosaic, Simcoe. And then everybody discovered the Southern Hemisphere hops. And that was a revelation. Nelson Savan. I remember, I mean, I think we all remember where we were when we first tasted. Nelson Savan, and Galaxy had that kind of effect too. And yeah, you're right. Stone and Wood brought that to the world, and the rest of us are glad they did. But does that make... Um, and
0: I could get myself into trouble for this question. Does that make hops the Fifty Shades of Grey ingredient? You know, it's it's not great writing, but it's just easy, easy and accessible for for, for people
1: to get. Right. I once made a beer called Fifty Shades of Green. <laughs> But
0: uh, so is it just something that everyone, you know, there's a subtlety to yeast characters that isolate a lot of people. And I find that even now Hefeweizen's or Belgian beers have that slightly funky character. Um, people like cheese sticks or cheese slices. Um, and as soon as there's some white mold around outside uh, or even blue mold inside, uh, that can be off-putting. And I find yeast characters can do that to, to people Um Are hops just something that people can get and they know that they're drinking something different on an easy level? Or is hops much more dynamic and substantial an ingredient than that?
1: Well, I think both. I think you can experience hops on many levels, depending on your level of interest. Um, if, If you just want to pick up on the difference between an industrial beer and a craft beer, you're often going to be able to point at the hops. But if you want to get into the minutiae of it and pick up on the different elements of different hop varieties that express themselves in different ways in different beers, usually based on their their, their components of essential oils, I mean, there are all sorts of ways to analyze them, but um, hops are a subject that gives back as much as you're willing to put in.
0: It's, that's uh, I, I like that. I'll uh, steal that. Um, you talked about when uh, IPAs were discovered, mine's hoppier, mine's stronger, we've got Imperial, and then suddenly we had the black IPA um, come out, which is almost sort of antithetical. It's almost a... Well, it's a an, talk- oxymoron. <laughs> an oxymoron. Um, it is an oxymoron. But... Is it still a IPA, or is it a whole different style?
1: I think it's a whole different style. I mean, by definition, it can't really be an IPA. I mean, before they actually made their appearance, I used to joke about that. I'd say, IPAs are so popular, I'm going to make a dark one. <laughs> and then somebody did. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, I do treat uh, the black IPA mm, sort of in passing in the book. That One of the recipes is a black IPA because it in- incorporates chocolate and coffee. Yep. Um... And then there are other ones, too. Belgian IPA. Is that really a Belgian I- Is that really an IPA? I mean, is it a Belgian pale ale that's hopped like an IPA, or is it an IPA that's brewed with Belgian yeast? Or is that the same thing? And then there's Session IPA, which takes it down a notch in terms of you know, its intensity and its alcoholic strength. And then there are all the ones that I get into using fruits and vegetables and herbs and spices and all that.
0: It's almost IPA, you put IPA into the name of your beer because it gives you a marketing tag as opposed to accurately describing the style and I find the session IPA, I my personal name for that is unbalanced pale ale <laughs> um, because I, I think that that's what, that's occupying the, the space that the, the, the pale ale should be and if it's too hoppy to become an IPA, it's almost um, getting out of that balance. Sphere. Do you have any views about that? That's a... Well,
1: it's a line extension for sure. Yep. It's an extension of a very popular brand that you hope will reach across many different styles. <laughs> you know, kind of the way, but there are like nine different kinds of Bud Light. They'd call everything they make Bud Light if it sold <laughs> as well as the original one. And IPA has, has, you know, you call something an IPA and people are at least going to take a look at
0: it. Yeah. Can you have a, a Saison IPA or you know? Are, are we starting to get into that the, the realm well, of the, the, the know, I'd have to think
1: about that, but why not? You know, hop it like that. Um, you know, a sour IPA, that's kind of a—that's almost antithetical, too, because the reason hops came into general use were because they suppressed bacterial infection. And if you've got a sour beer, well, it's kind of bacterially influenced, and hops and sourness aren't supposed to get along. And in some ways, you kind of have to fool those those beers into having that having the, those— Components, you have to do blending with finished beer in order to introduce hoppy character. Or you can dry hop it to bring it in late after the sourness is taken on. And, you know, Saison, I suppose you could probably play some of those games as well. But I don't see why you couldn't uh, sort of spin those two things together. The New England IPA, it,
0: it's it, it exploded. Uh, it's been very popular, uh, and it, it it's interesting to see the evolution of that style. It started, uh, and I've I've never had one. I think Hetty Topper was the progenitor of that style. Right. Um, that when you look at the mango juice um, beers, that, that are, doesn't necessarily have mango in it. Oh no, 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 it doesn't. But it looks like a glass of mango juice. Yeah. And I remember when I first saw that, having grown up in a. Generation when beer was very, very clear, and uh, you're speaking to someone like Charlie Bamforth, and you, you sort of hear that view, and suddenly you see this thing that is so murky that it's almost unappetizing to my eyes. Um, you know, was that
1: style driven by flavor, or was it driven by Instagram? Well, probably both, I suppose. And you know, before I really get to that, I'm kind of mystified by how divisive the New England IPA has been in our industry. I mean, there are people who are long-established brewers who feel that it's really important to take a stand against it. Uh, and that just makes people dig in that much more with more, that but much how, more commitment. How,
0: how can you be against a beer like that? I, I, I agree. How can you be against a beer style? You cannot like it. I, yeah. I get
1: that. And and maybe it will pass. You know, maybe it won't. I mean, one thing that I think is fascinating about it is that it's really kind of revolutionized the use of hops in some ways. Those beers don't have very high, they're not very high in IBUs typically, and yet they have this massive hop component So they're using hops in a way that that announces themselves uh, in a in a different bold way, and I don't see how anybody who's interested in innovation could be against that. Um, I mean, they they have become enormous, and I think they're. I but I do believe that I would. I don't think I would make a beer purposely cloudy unless I felt that that introduced a flavor that I thought was necessarily beneficial. I don't mean that beers have to be crystal clear. In the Pacific Northwest, people don't trust bright beer. You know, hippies like cloudy beer. Yep. And that's what they want to buy. You know, the man makes bright beer. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, th- I think to actually go to those excesses where the beer looks like a milkshake or like pineapple juice, yeah. I mean, that's a bit much. To me, I guess
0: that's where the purist or that's where the division comes in because... As one brewer expressed to me, the original New England IPAs were hazy because that was an, a, a byproduct of the technique that was used to get that flavour in there. But then when you start hearing brewers wanting to have the cloudiest one and they start adding apple pectins or things like that to, to get that haze, that seems to be where... Um, the division comes in because it's not about the craft it's not about the technique it's about the aesthetics that have nothing to do with the beer
1: yeah i agree i think that's why i say that i think that's a bit much if if a byproduct of a process that produces a delicious beer is some haze and maybe even somewhat extreme haze so be it but to build haze into it purpose purposely i don't know And
0: is that where, and I think it was Garrett Oliver who found himself in trouble for talking about it was a a beer driven by Instagram, Um, which of itself doesn't, to me, seem too controversial because I'm always struck by the fact that... the Bohemian Pilsner and the, 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 the Golden Lager originated at the same time and in the same place as Crystal started becoming commercially available. And, uh, you know, the colour of your beer or the look of your beer didn't matter too much when you're drinking in a stone goblet. But suddenly when everyone can afford glass the look of your beer becomes important. And uh, we're seeing beer styles evolve at a time when we've got uh, phones that are constantly bombarding us with what other people are drinking. And uh, to me, there is an equivalence between those two trends.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll set aside for the moment, Garrett being critical of a social media that promotes something. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you can see if you can see through the beer, yeah, I, I'm I've been fascinated by that same fact that, that that the 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 refinement of glass production is one thing that made bright beer popular,
0: and and I, I guess that also drove uh, beers like Corona, the Flint glass bottles, and uh, to to get beer in those glasses, it evolved a whole lot of uh, brewing techniques that would made them light stable um so so that and that's probably a negative evolution of of beer as opposed to some of the positive ones we've been talking about but um you you can never separate a beer from its time and place and what else is going on in in the culture um it is i guess what i was digging down to Um, but then how much of the evolution of beer is the next beer is a reaction to the last beer so we talk, I talked with Kim about the Brute IPA, and that seems to be the next explosive iteration of the, the IPA. And it's very much a reaction to those full-bodied, juicy uh, IPAs, and it's very much about dry-bodied.
1: Yeah, and yet it's, bother, it's borrowed some techniques from the cloudy IPAs. The, the hopping in a brewed IPA is not dissimilar from a New England IPA, from a really juicy IPA. They're, once again, they're fairly low in bittering units and very heavy in the dry hop character. So they're, there's a lot of hop character without extreme bitterness. And in the case of these beers, because they're so dry, because they're so thinned out by the use of enzymes, they push the hops to the forefront without that distraction of cloudiness.
0: And I tried my first one the other day. Uh, I, I'm a, odd believer in that. I, I tended not want to judge US beers when I drink them in Australia because. Uh, <laughs> Beer doesn't travel well, and you're never really reviewing the style, and you're never really reviewing unless you're drinking it fresh. But I, I managed to try an Australian brewer's interpretation, and I thought it was a delightful beer. It, was, it really did become a show. He described it as being naked hops. You're really getting the hops without any other um,
1: ingredients clouding that, that, that hop. Is
0: that a reasonable description?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a really fun thing to play with. I mean, I, I th- I'm pretty sure it, it originated in the Bay Area. Uh, Kim Sturtivant, the brewery, brewer at Social Kitchen and Brewery, is the one that I first, you know, ran into it with, and he, he, to his credit, you know, he brewed this this style of beer and made it known to all the local brewers and said, "Let's make this a thing," and really shared all the information about how he had, had produced it so that we could all try it too. And at Magnolia, we've been doing it, and they're not easy to master. We've had some, you know, we've had some stumbles along the way to developing it, but I feel like we've finally gotten it. But it's been a really fun project. What makes it hard? Well, because the beer is so dry, um, there's the possibility of off flavors. Any off flavor has nowhere to hide in this beer. And sometimes off flavors are triggered by things like dry hopping. You know, so if you're dry hopping at the wrong time, it's possible for that, the teeny tiny little secondary fermentation that can be triggered by the addition of hops to pr- produce some diacetyl. That in that case, the beer is so dry that you don't have the opportunity for the fermentation to, to get rid of it. So there's that possibility. The enzyme, if added too late in the process, can also create off flavors. So you, can, you need to get the timing right on, every, on everything, really. The introduction of the enzymes and the times at which you hop. So it's pretty challenging. Also, the choice of hop variety can be difficult. The first time we did it, we used some Nelson Savannah, a hop that I love. But it, in in a beer that dry, it was it was too sweaty tasting, too bold, and it wasn't a pleasant flavor. You know, what we perceive in a in an ale with a certain amount of mouthfeel and residual sugar as gooseberries turns out to be just sort of like, whoa, that's diesel fuel and it's K- I was gonna say kerosene. Did it come yeah, to as a kerosene? It did. Okay. And so I just wrote to a friend of mine, Will Myers, at Cambridge Brewing the other day. He wrote to ask me if for some pointers. And he was saying he was thinking of using Nelson in that beer. And I said, don't do it. You know, we went to, we went to noble hops and a little bit of citra to give a little bit of juice to it, a little jazz uh, on top of the mild spice. Because those noble hops were not meant to produce a lot of flavor, maybe a touch of spiciness, but they were mostly to be used in balancing bitterness. So we bitter with something like that and then move on to maybe just a note of something more distinctive. And he was thinking of using Hollertau Blanc, which I think is a really nice op, and I thought that was a really good idea.
0: You you mentioned the the use of enzymes and uh, amylase to break down the sugars, and for a long time, when we look at the definition of craft brewing and the traditional um, element of it, uh, using things like enzymes was seen as a province of the big industrial brewers. Oh, it was anathema. Uh, It it was. And and what does the use of enzymes now um, by craft brewers, what does that say about the evolution of the craft of brewing?
1: Well, yeah, I, I mean, I remember all sorts of little distinctions that we all drew back then. I used to think that using hop oils and hop extracts was cheating you know that was a terrible thing to do that was not very crafty uh you know we uh sometimes when kim and i have been traveling we've heard from people that their definition of a craft brewery is 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 at you know if you've added any kind of if you unless you bottle condition your beer you're not a craft brewery yep but you know something like something like this might might have seemed like just something that was absolutely unthought of before but i think if we look at for example, the Brewers Association definition of a craft beer involves the use of the word traditional. Yes. And that definition had to be tinkered with a little bit because it was recognized that that you can be you you can be using adjuncts or in this case you can be using enzymes, but as long and as long as you're using them in order to enhance flavor or to explore some sort of creative side of the brewing process to bring something new to, to drinkers that they haven't been a- acquainted with before. That's still craft. And I, don't think, I think it would be hard to argue that the use of enzymes in the pursuit of inventing a new style of beer or playing on New England IPA or whatever it's playing on, that that's craft. That's what we do. That's culture.
0: As is often pointed out, I'm sure the first brewer that used electricity uh, or used uh, anything other than wood um, was accused of the same thing because it was even within the last 10 years that one of Australia's largest um, industrial breweries, Lion, um, felt that they couldn't claim that one of their beers was naturally brewed or brewed naturally if they used enzymes. Um, And so there's been a a real step change uh, in, in, in our attitudes to brewing um it, and does that represent a maturing
1: of our approach as craft brewers i think it does um i think we have to recognize that we're you know you look and you you've talked about looking into the heart of the brewer it's about motive we're trying to make delicious beer um not by the use of um, artificial ingredients these are natural ingredients we, we i mean it's it's about beer we're trying to make delicious beer Who makes the
0: distinction about the motive then? I mean, who who gets to judge? Is it the Brewers Association or is
1: it the consumer? Well, judgments about motive. I mean, the consumer doesn't necessarily think all that much about motive. You know, the consumer is mostly concerned with what's in the glass. Um, We hope, you know, as craft brewers, as independent brewers, we hope that the consumer cares about who makes the beer and what their motive is in terms of social consciousness (laughs) and caring for their employees and having a relationship with their consumer. Um, I don't know. I mean, who judges the motive? Uh, it's, I mean, that's, that's a tough one.
0: Ultimately, the market decides, and I guess my, if I could answer my own question, it's uh, very much about transparency and brewers being open about who they are and what they do, and then consumers will value. Is that a, a reasonable... I think so.
1: I think, I think it is about transparency. If you're trying to hide something because you think it's somehow shameful, well, then you've sort of <laughs> shamed yourself. <laughs> and if, But if you share, and the craft brewing movement has been very open about its processes, you know, and that's one reason we're all so friendly and interesting and share so much so freely. Uh, but as long as you let people know what the process is and bring them into that process um, and invite their feedback and all that stuff, that's where honesty lies.
0: Now, we, we might move on to your book. and um, We've talked a lot about IPAs generally, but you've uh, got a book out at the moment, Brewing Eclectic IPAs. Um, what is an eclectic IPA?
1: Well, it's IPA augmented by the use of other ingredients. Uh, fruits, vegetables, herbs, spices, coffee, chocolate, uh, even covering stuff like uh, sour treatments and, and the use of uh, wood aging.
0: It sounds like you've given a, a roadmap or a manual to take stylistic uh, evolution of the IPA even further.
1: Well, rather than a manual, I hope that it's a springboard. You know, I, I present a lot of ideas that I've had, and the, and I analyze a lot of materials that are potential ingredients in IPA, and there are charts in the book that sort of treat uh, different fruits, all those things. Um... And then when they might go into the beer, what, at what stage of the process, what, ser- what form they might be used in. Because, of course, in the case of citrus, there's, there's zest, there's peel, there's juice, and other things have different aspects as well. So I think more than anything, I, it's a book about recipe formulation and, in, and the sources of inspiration. And I hope in there that people would read it and not only take some of the ideas that I think are interesting, but get their own ideas and build on it that much farther.
0: How much further can IPA go?
1: Well, I don't know. I, don't, I think that's impossible to predict. We talked a bit earlier about uh, stretching it, stretching its parameters, and also spinning different styles into IPA, all that stuff. We also talked about brewed IPA. I and, mean, you know, I, I hadn't heard of brewed IPA a year and a half ago. Uh, so that w- I wouldn't have been able to anticipate that. And I, I like to think there are any number of other things that will pop up that we haven't thought of yet.
0: Is the constant quest for change or constant quest for new something that is ultimately self defeating in craft beer? Is that going to lead to, whilst it's exciting now, does that exhaust the consumer ultimately?
1: I don't think there's any question that the consumer at times is a bit overwhelmed. Um, there's endless choice out there. Um, you know, you can't fit an infinite number of beers on a shelf or on any sort of product lineup. So there is, it's sort of self-limiting that way. Um, but people do seem to be into it. People seem to have, you know, the human mind has a pretty uh, elastic uh, capacity. We've talked a lot about hops, and hops really define IPAs. Um, are we going to
0: see malt, for example, make a comeback uh, in, in IPAs in other than... Um, you know, as a black IPA, which we, we talked about, you know, is, is there scope for development of the, of the malt profile of beers?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, we're seeing an explosion of micro malteries, malteries in the U.S. Uh, and I think to some extent in other countries as well. Um, and those, those are taking heirloom varieties of malt, bringing them back. Uh, encouraging cultivation of barley varieties that we haven't seen in some time that most brewers have never brewed with. So sure, I mean, that presents a possibility. I mean, we've talked mostly about hops and the essential oils, the terpenes in them that can combine with some of these ingredients we're talking about. But there are also other byproducts of fermentation that uh, the creative brewer should look at as well. I mean, esters you know the way the fermentation is conducted by you know any number of things that can produce produce different levels of esters you know it can come down to vessel configuration level of oxygenation the amount of yeast that's pitched things like that the temperature at which a fermentation is conducted these create flavors that can also be consulted in the use of other ingredients so it's not just it's not just hops it's not just I mean it's also malt but it's also esters and thiols and aldehydes and all sorts of things that come about as natural byproducts of fermentation.
0: When you start talking about some of those characters that, that come from hops uh, we are seeing the, the the rise of the hop oil or the hop extract um, again not the uh, light stable ones that, uh, that that were, I guess gave hop extracts a bad name but we are seeing some of these flavor essences come out of hops. Is that a positive trend? You know, can, can we
1: make making good, consistent beer too easy um, through the use of these? I don't, I don't think it makes it too easy. I mean, managing those products is, is as much a challenge as anything else. I also think it's in some ways it's a responsible choice to some extent because to use a hop extract um, sends a message to hop growers and also doesn't misuse uh, really wonderful and distinctive hops that are better used later in the process. You know, I wouldn't recommend bittering a beer with Galaxy or Nelson Savant or some of these other wonderful hops. And uh, if you can, if you can do that first hop addition with a hop extract, you also increase your yield. You know, you've got less hop material in the in the kettle in the whirlpool, and that's one of the challenges of making these heavily dry hop beers as well. That you can put so much in there that it that you've got this 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 enormous quantity of mud that you've got to sort of separate from the other beer uh hop extracts in some ways you know make do make that easier but you know it's not it's not the bagged style of uh of homebrewing you know where you hang it up in your bathtub and then 10 days later you have beer to drink beer's not that easy to make there are lots and lots of choices to make along the way that's just one of them
0: if you could give advice to, to brewers about making a good IPA, can you distill it to one key learning? Or is there any advice you give to brewers that when they approach their IPA, regardless of style, what should they be looking at?
1: Well, I, I hesitate to say it just because it's become such a trope, such a such an easy way to answer a question like that. But it's it truly is about the balance. You know, a beer can have 100 IBUs, but it you know, but it needs enough malt to fight back to to bring that beer into balance. And the same thing could be said of the use of some of these specialty ingredients. That uh, you know, if you put a ton of grapefruit into a beer, you know, it's going to be too much about the grapefruit. You want it to act in concert with the hops that you've used and be laid atop that platform that you've built with the malt and other elements of the beer. So. I I I'd say more th- more than balance, though consciousness, you know, make the choices conscious, not just sprawling, not just haphazard.
0: Do you think that in its exuberance um, and new brewers' exuberance to push boundaries, that the industry has let itself get out get out of balance in its approach to hops or in in IPA, or are we seeing a, a regression towards the mean and they are starting to find a little bit more balance?
1: I don't think it's gotten out of hand. I mean one could say, you know, why do we have all these hop ingredients? I mean, all these different hop varieties, rather. You know, isn't it too much? Is there too much choice? I mean, you know, we're, we're grown-ups. You know, we can get into it. Um, you know, you can do it, as I said before, you can get, you know, do this on whatever level you choose to. Uh, if you prefer to work with a stable of four or five different hop varieties, you're going to make a lot of delicious beer, Um you aren't necessarily going to have, you know, be at the forefront of what's going on with hops, but that's okay. And if people who are really into that, that terrific, they can be on the hop research council. You know, they can they can take it any to any level they want.
0: Um, Dick, one last question before I let you go: um, What was your epiphany beer? What was the beer that really changed your view about what beer can be?
1: I mean, I remember the first beers I drank that made me like beer. I was in Germany when I was 16 years old, and. When I arrived, my beer drinking experiences had mainly been about, you know, going to a party and, and enjoying those effects. But those were the first really flavorful and interesting beers I feel like I'd had. But in tying into this book, I really feel like um, a key epiphany beer for me was the Ballantine India Pale ale. Uh, Ballantine made it, I think, you know, into the, I think they started making that beer in about the 1940s. Uh, and they made it according to old, you know, really authentic Burton-type parameters. You know, they dry hop, they aged it in wood. They did all these things that American, bre- American brewers really weren't doing. And certainly as the brewing industry consolidated, they s- entirely stopped doing. But, the, but Ballantyne continued to make this India Pale Ale that I remember drinking in the 70s. And it was completely unlike anything else that was out there. And I think not only did it anticipate uh, trends in brewing, but it anticipated trends in brewing business because it was expensive. Its price reflected the ingredients and the care and the time that went into it. In the 70s, it cost about six U.S. dollars a six-pack. Wow. That was a lot back then. That was groundbreaking in itself.
0: What happened to to the brewery?
1: They have well. Ballantine was a brand that was it was a Falstaff brand for a while, um, you know, and those brands have have. Passed through various corporate hands too. Uh, whomever has owned that brand has brought it back periodically. It's interesting that it has undergone some change each time. It's a bit different, and also your memory plays plays tricks with you. So I remember it as with with intensity back, you know, from back in the seventies. But geez, that was that was forty five years ago. <laughs> you know, my palate has changed. I mean, I'd be interested to taste exactly that beer right now and see what my reaction would be. But it's gone through a lot of change. One well, sort of an interesting side note with that is the custodian of that beer, oddly, has been a guy named Alan Kornhauser. You know, because he worked at Anchor when Anchor was trying to emulate the Ballantine IPA when they developed the Liberty beer, Liberty Ale, and then he's gone on to work at other breweries where they've done versions of it, and then he's actually worked for Pabst, which has owned that brand, okay. and then brought out uh, brought out his best memory. Of what those beers were in the under the Ballantine IPA label.
0: Do beers ever fossilize? Do they ever stay static, or is it a, a constant battle of our memories of the beer, our changing palates, and then also the changing incarnations of the the, the style and the recipe?
1: I, I think it's it's ever changing. I mean, you look at the rest. I mean, to, on the most sort of prosaic level, you look at the recipes and the analyses of industrial beers, and they've steadily dropped in IBU you know they've changed people might think that you know that Budweiser has been the same forever or that Coors has been the same forever but they haven't been the same either even though we think of them as unchanging. Dick
0: uh, that's probably uh, I'd love to keep chatting but uh, I've taken up enough of your time thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News and uh, I hope you and Kim enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. I'm sure we will thanks a lot. Was Dick Cantwell. We thank Bintani for helping us to take the show on the road and get to Brewcon 2018. It was a terrific opportunity to generate some great content for you our listeners and you'll see us out and about much more often thanks to our presenting partners like Bintani. If you like what we do at Radio Brews News, you can help us out in a number of ways yourselves. You can sponsor the show either by a small monthly contribution or through a one-off donation. You'll find links on how to do that in the show notes. You can also review the podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcasting service, or even just give us a shout-out on your favourite social media platform, all of which helps other people to find out about the show. You can also tell us what you think about the show and what's going on in the beer industry by emailing us at producer at bruisenews.com.au. All letter writers will receive a Brews News bottle opener and our good friends at Beer Cartel sponsor our letter of the week. We will choose an email, a tweet or a comment each week and Beer Cartel will send the author a mixed six-pack plus a Brews News bottle opener. We thank Beer Cartel for all of their support.